Hi, everyone. I'm Adam Johnson. I'm a dad and a rare disease patient advocate, a self-proclaimed dadvocate. From the onset of symptoms and even after an eventual diagnosis, the isolation was almost as excruciating as the symptoms themselves. I felt so alone in so many ways. One of the most prominent ways in particular was as a parent. I knew I couldn't be the only person with a rare disease who was also trying to raise children, but it sure felt like I was. As I've learned, when there's not a specific community you're looking for, one that you need, sometimes you just have to make it yourself. It's taken a while, but I finally decided to do just that. And here we are. This is Parents is Rare, a series brought to you by Energy in Action. Living life as a parent with a rare disease can be quite paradoxical. We laugh and cry, we're vulnerable and scared, we're brave and afraid, all at the same time. Parents is Rare is a community where parents like me, who have a rare disease or chronic illness, can connect, share, support, and be supported. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Parents is Rare series of the Energy in Action podcast. I'm your host, Adam Johnson. As always, great to be back with you. Well, here we are, middle of July, and when this episode drops, I'll be preparing to join MitoAction and the International Network for Fatty Acid Oxidation Research and Management, or INFORM, for the fourth annual International Metabolic Conference for Fatty Acid Oxidation Disorders. This event will be in Denver, Colorado from July 21st through the 23rd. The agenda's set. It looks like an amazing event. Make sure that you follow along with MitoAction on socials to get a preview and check things out. I'm sure there'll be lots of great information coming out of there. Now, one of the parts that I'm really excited to help out with a little bit at this event is the storytelling session. There's going to be corresponding opportunities for members of the FAOD community to share a little bit about themselves. So be on the lookout for a future episode of Energy in Action and some other tidbits from MitoAction that result from this gathering in Denver. Now, as a little primer for the event, we're taking a deeper dive into one of those patient stories that I talked about today. This month's guest is Karen Rickman. I met Karen on a call that some of us in the Mito community joined through Mito Action, and we've had some wonderful interactions, including the one that you're going to hear today. Karen does a fabulous job laying out her story and helping us learn about her journey in this episode, including her connection to FAOD, so I won't take too much time diving into it here. That said, there are many wonderful takeaways and interesting perspectives, many of which are just the beginning, and I'm sure you're going to learn a lot from Karen. Now, as most of you who listen to the Parents is Rare series know, my guests who join me each month are typically other parents who have some form of a rare disease or chronic illness. Well, Karen was that, and she's also helping us branch into another area where I haven't seen too much traction yet. And again, the key word here, yet. I think Karen's going to really knock down some doors and make some headway here. So in addition to being a parent as rare, Karen is a grandparent as rare. And she has some wonderful aspirations for future support and advocacy. I'm really looking forward to seeing where this goes. I have a feeling it's going to be fabulous, not only for Karen, but for others who may fall into a similar situation as her. So before I turn it over to Karen, I want to share a little quote that she came up with and sent along to me. You'll understand more of the significance and the context after you hear our conversation in this episode, but this is a wonderful intro in and of itself. Karen says... Life is like riding a bike. Balance yourself, hydrate frequently, and be safe. It isn't how far or how fast you go that counts. No matter whether you are on a self-powered beach bike, a tricycle, electric-powered or power-assist bike, or a chair, find joy in the moment. Celebrate the personal success you have, big or small, with assistance or without. 
It is the freedom of the wind in your face and the joy of the ride. Do what you can, love what you do, no judgment. Gotta say, Karen, well said. And there's plenty more takeaways like this in our conversation. Hope you enjoy. All right. Hello, Karen. Thanks for joining me today. How's summer treating you so far? Summer is treating me actually very well this year. How about you? It's going pretty well. We had a pretty mild June out here in Idaho, which was nice. And now that we've snuck into July, these triple digits are starting to to hit. And those are not my friend. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm already ready for a reprieve. The heat is always a, a nemesis for me. Yeah, it's a nemesis for me too. Well, I'm really happy to be here. I'm a little bit nervous, so forgive me if I lose my words sometimes because that just seems to be what happens when I get nervous. But I'm excited to share my journey. It's been a pretty lonely one as a person who um, was mitochondrially challenged prior to genetic testing. And it has changed the world in many, many ways. And it's still the same in many ways as well. So we'll talk about all of that, I think, before we're done. Yeah, definitely. We're really excited to have you. And thank you for you know taking this step out, taking this little leap to share your story. I know for me, that first time that I did that, it was really nerve wracking. And there's still some times when I'm sharing or, or speaking and, and telling a little bit about my journey and I get nervous as well. So you are just fine in that regard. It's perfectly normal um, for, for a lot of us that do, that do this and you'll be great. I really appreciate you bringing this in. And normally, you know, this is the Parents is Rare series of the Energy in Action podcast. And today we've got kind of a special edition here. This is like a, a grandparents is rare edition. I love this little lens that we're able to take a peek into. And again, I thank you for taking some time to share your story. So I think we could start by just, you know, giving you the, the floor and having an opportunity to just share a little bit about yourself, and then we'll let the conversation go from there and see where it takes us. Does that sound all right? That sounds great. Well, my name is Karen Rickman. I live in Minnesota. Um, I'm 66 years old, and I have five grandchildren and one on the way. The one on the way is a big surprise, and I'm very excited about it. (laughs) Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) I've been happily married to my husband, um, Paul, for 44 years. It has been a an interesting journey with living with chronic pain since I for my entire life. There's no question about it. I also want you to know, and everyone else to know, that I am an energizer bunny with a dying battery. And mm-hmm. maybe it's just a low battery. It's not really dying, but mm-hmm. there I have so many ideas and so little energy, and it is very frustrating for me. But I've made the best of my life and continue to do good things and have a good career and have a good family and all those things. My mito journey started, I believe, when I was four and I was hospitalized for something that my mother would never talk to me about. But I was not, I don't remember actually having like a cold or the flu or the pneumonia or something. But I just never really thought too much about that I had pain all the time until I was 12. And when I was 12, I went, I was in gym class in what would be middle school of today. And we had done hurdles the day before and I could not walk the next day. I had so much pain while well, I had to walk because I had to go to school, but I mean, I had so much excruciating pain and it seemed to happen every time I ran and it seemed to happen every time I had done something like really exciting and fun that was physically sports active, run for run with the class or whatever. So I went to the gym teacher on that particular day and said, you know, I'm really in a lot of pain. And she said, well, you can sit out today. And then I thought, well, I'm going to ask some of my friends, does anyone else have this problem? And they all said, no. 
And I, I remember being in the, in the locker room, changing clothes, talking to everybody. And I'm like, wow, something's really different about this. The thing that I, that boggles me that, that I struggle with is why didn't my parents know? Why didn't I ever talk about that? I hurt, or did I talk about that? I hurt, and they didn't really think it was anything. Was it, was I making it up or was I just, you know, I'd done something to hurt myself, but actually it was so debilitating that by the time I hit high school, I didn't want to do sports anymore. I didn't want to have gym class. I was waiting for that to be over in college. Like, oh boy, I don't have to go and kill myself. The other thing that I thought was interesting was that I also started having more and more female problems where I had menstrual periods that were extremely heavy and very, very painful. And I would actually have to leave school because I was in so much discomfort. The things that that were going on, all this stuff, let's say by the time I was eight, 15 or so, it obviously had, I guess, gone forward a little bit from being a little kid that has a lot of energy to like, now I'm a teenager and teenagers are a little more laid back. So maybe this is just that I'm, I don't know. I've, you'll hear me say that I thought I was lazy. I actually didn't understand why I couldn't do what I needed to do or wanted to do. In school, I really tried hard in school, but I often fell asleep in class. And therefore, I was never an A student. And I felt like I was stupider than anyone else in my family because I have a genius oldest sister and a really smart and creative middle sister, a brother that had a learning disability, and then there was me. And I tried very, very hard, but just didn't succeed particularly. Um, I was like the B plus student that wanted to be the A that went to an Ivy League school when I was finished with high school. But music was a lifeline. And even back then, that was my way of getting through the day. I taught myself to play the guitar. I played the piano. I tried every instrument in, in, the, in the band that I could try. <laughs> I just loved music. When I went on to college, I was having more trouble because, well, first off, because I was having allergies to food that was in the lunch, I mean, in the, in the food service that I didn't know that I was allergic to. So that was one of the problems. And then secondly, I was falling asleep like consistently in class. And I would have to ask my, if I had someone in my class and I knew I'd have to say, can I get the notes from you? Cause like, I don't really know what went on. So I was, I was actually learning from my notes. Um, So then one of the things that I found that was a good way of getting through the lectures and things were to doodle. And so I always had a pen in my hand and I filled my paper with notes and doodles to get through and stay awake. And as I got a little bit older and went to law school, it was a really big problem. And the funniest one was a professor that I had for criminal law, and he would wink at me when I would wake up. But I got an A in his class. I I really liked that class. I just don't know how I got an A in the class. Maybe, you know, and it was an anonymous grading system. It was like an osmosis or something. Yeah, you were just soaking it in while you were resting. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So while all of this was going on, I started having more and more things that were going on, like in my early 20s, where I'd get hurt doing nothing. I'm not kidding you. I didn't do anything. I, I wasn't like going out and running laps around the field or doing, you know, even, I don't even, I had a bike. I did ride my bike, but I didn't do, I didn't do anything that was like go play softball or I maybe swam occasionally, but really it was too painful. And I didn't understand why I always felt like I hurt something when I went out and did that. And I, I lived on 
you know, taking aspirin, which was the common thing to take at that point, just to get rid of some of that pain. About the time that I was in college, also, I found out that I had never had a real job before. And I went into, um, I had an internship and went into work in the morning before I went to classes because I had had afternoon classes and I was required that I stay in school while I was doing this. So I did the, I'd go in at like, I don't know, 7.30 in the morning thinking, oh, I've got a day ahead of me and I'd be, I'd take the bus to work and I would, you know, I'd show up there and, and then I would crash and fall asleep just that quick, like 8.30 in the morning, everyone's coming in and I'm sleeping on my desk. <laughs> Again, I'm like, what is wrong with me? Why is this happening? I don't understand it. The story continues that when I was in law school and um, I got a job at the at Legal Aid when I was in my third year, what would have would have been I was supposed to be working for a judge as a clerk in the summer, and I was laid off from that job because I couldn't dress appropriately because I didn't have money to buy new clothes for that job. And so I went on to go and work at Legal Aid, which was a better fit. But I found out really quick that what I wanted to do was not what I was learning in law school, which was private law, but rather I wanted to do advocacy. And I made a big switch and I left law school and I decided that uh, by then I had married my husband and I decided that I was going to take some time off and have a family. But before I would, wanted to have a family, I needed to know what was, what was going on because I was having a lot of back pain and I was having some numbness in my feet and things that I just didn't want to have a child until I knew that everything was okay. And was this kind of the first time, Karen, that that you decided to really jump in and be like, okay, I got to figure something out. Like you've kind of, these little pieces along the road, you're like, something's off here. I'm not really sure. Was this the first time you really tried to dig into it? It was really the first time. It was really like important. I thought, I don't want to pass on anything to my children Mm-hmm. that would, you know, endanger them. And I was a, one of those people that said, you know, if I can't have kids, it's okay, I'll adopt. It's not really that big a deal. Or maybe I won't have children because that was kind of where I started when we got married was I wasn't sure I wanted to have children. And I'm, you know, thinking back on it, I was in pain all the time. I didn't really understand what was so great about everything. <laughs> yeah, It hurt. Right. <laughs> you know, I was just like, wow. So I went to get the diagnosis and the doctor said we that I had a herniated disc. And um, when he went in, he saw that there was a birth defect, that there was an enlarged disc from a uh, facet joint hadn't developed in my lower back. And so that there was a reason why my back hurt all the time. And he did, he did a, a surgery to take off the herniation and we proceeded to get pregnant. And I had um, not a bad pregnancy actually, because I think I was eating better during the pregnancy. I was really more consistent with my eating that it actually helped. And so I couldn't understand why I was feeling better, but now I, now I get it. Now that I've got my diagnosis, we'll get to that. But anyway, so we, the pregnancy went pretty good. When we, when our daughter was born, I stayed home with her. I had six years to get back to law school from the time I had started law school to finish law school. So I was still debating. I didn't really think I wanted to go back, but I still was vacillating. So I started being a mom. I was 24 and I often fell asleep when, you know, there were 
quiet moments, as most parents are really exhausted, I was doubly exhausted. <laughs> I wonder sometimes, Karen, if that's a way to for us to describe this, condi- you know, like we're working through these mitochondrial disease conditions or other rare disease conditions that can be so debilitating. Maybe that's another way we can describe it. Like, hey, remember when you first had your kid and you were just looking for any opportunity to sleep, <laughs> right? Like, yes. that's what I'm like, except all the time. Like you just said, it's that and double. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. And then when I would, you know, she'd lay down to sleep and there was no way I was going to do anything but sleep. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, even when she was a year old or two years old and she was still napping and I was like, I have to take a nap. And it became almost like a, like a, I was driven. It has to happen. I can't not take a nap. I won't make it through the day. So as she got a little bit older and I could turn on Sesame Street or something after the nap, I often fell asleep again. I mean, I'm not surprised. Like now, today, I can say, oh, yeah, that definitely was a sign of something not being right. So with our second child, um, when I was 27 or 26, we had our second child. And by that point, our daughter didn't really want to be, you know, taking a nap. But I said, you have to have rest time. So in our family, until they were about six, they all had rest time. And then I got really smart about it. And I started saying, okay, well, mom needs to take a nap. So because I need to take a nap, I'm going to, I'm going to get you some books from the library and you can look at the books or you can listen to a tape, which was really common back then. Now we just turn on a digital device and they would have an hour of quiet time. And believe me, I laid down and I went to sleep. I, there was no question. And luckily they were really good about staying in their rooms when they got old enough that they didn't have need naps anymore or rest time. And then they were old enough to be responsible and take care of themselves. I, I asked my oldest um, child, my daughter, if what she remembered, if she knew that something wasn't right with me. And she said, no, mom, I always thought because when dad was home, he would lay down and take a nap too, that it, it was just the way that families were, just what people did. So she said, I never even doubted it. And I always wondered why the kids never made any comments or complained about the fact that I didn't go to a sports game or didn't do, you know, the, some of the activities that if they were going for a long walk that was too long for me to do, or if they were going to, you know, there was a lot of activities that I, they needed volunteers for, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't offer to volunteer. But it was just the way that it was, it sounds like, right? Like, that's kind of how it was. I worry, I worry about that. Same thing for me sometimes, Karen, with, with my kids and with the way that I have to do things, because I, I have to do the same thing, lay down in the afternoon, strap into my ventilator, do my breathing treatments, lay down, sleep, rest, you know, can't have to plan out the details, be very meticulous with things. And I worry about that sometimes. But most of the time when I talk to the kids about it, and it's not like a retrospect, like it was for you asking your daughter, which I'm really glad that you brought that up, because I'm curious about that sometimes, right? What does this look like way down the road? But for the most part, it's just kind of our new normal. And that's the way that we do things now. Yeah, it's really interesting, though, to hear that perspective looking back from your daughter. Yeah. And they didn't really know anything different. So I'm not surprised that it wasn't a really big deal. The biggest thing that was challenging me was that I just, between all of the back issues that I was having, like the surgery didn't really help for long. And then I had to have a, uh, when I was 35, I, um, my husband had injured his back and I had to pick up some of the pieces that he normally did. He was so great about playing with the kids, doing the rough housing, doing the, you know, all the outside stuff that was fun. I was a little jealous, to be honest, because I couldn't do all of the things that they were doing. But he would play with them. He would take care of the things in the house. He did the stuff in the yard. And he just, whatever I was able to do, he was happy to have me help him. 
but he didn't have an expectation necessarily that I was going to be able to do it. So when he injured his back, then I needed to, I thought, oh, I need to get stronger. So I went back to PT. And in PT, the woman that I had was a new PT and she injured my back. And so I went to the surgeon and the surgeon said, yeah, you need a fusion. And I was 35 and 35 is very young to have a fusion on your back, but I could not walk even a block anymore. I had terrible pain in my feet. Um, It was just really bad. And so I this doctor, just amazingly, was in the middle of an FDA study to do this new kind of surgery on for fusions. And I was one of 10 people in the United States, the first 10, to have this surgery at 35. The good news is, is that it worked. And it's been very successful. And I've been very lucky. As I've aged, I've had a few little problems that are mostly um, related to the the stiffness of my of my lower back. But I'm so grateful. I mean, honestly, that was, that was huge. But that doctor said to me at six months visit, I went back to talk to him and I told him how much pain I was still in. Oh my gosh, it was horrible pain. And it just didn't relent. And he said, I think, um, he said, I just went to this workshop on fibromyalgia. And I said, what's that? And he's like, well, you know, it starts telling me, you know, that it's sort of a, place we put people, we don't know how to explain their pain. And, um, you know, he's kind of hemming and hawing a little bit and I go, okay. So he says, you know, you should look into that. And he gave me the name of a clinic and said, why don't you talk to them and see, maybe this is really what's going on for you. So that was at 35. So that means that I had already gone 35 years with all of these problems. It was the first time anyone had actually told me something that actually, that made sort of sense. Like, yeah, okay, this, this could be it. So I had the surgery, uh, recovery went on for a year. The kids were helping me when I was supposed to be helping them. I felt really, really like, oh, this is not what life is supposed to be, but I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm not a giver. I never give up. Mm-hmm. My PT always tells me that you're so great. You never <laughs> give up. Like I know I don't, I don't give up because what's my alternative? Yeah. Yeah. That perseverance can really come in handy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I believe in it. I think it's really helped me a lot. Um, so after the fibromyalgia diagnosis, I started going to a support group never really felt like it did anything for me. And finally, I asked the people that were organizing it, do they need a um, person to run the support group? Because I felt like I could be a leader in all of this. Because I was doing okay, not not fabulously wonderful, but okay, I had a life. That's what I did. I ran the support group in the evening, one evening every, I think it was once a month. And the the next piece of all of this went on for about six years of doing a balancing act between the kids, my pain, just general pain in everywhere, and wanting to, to volunteer in the community as well. Because I still did, I only had a part-time job and I really, I did want to go to a full-time job. I, every time I tried to increase my hours, I just never could do it. It was just, it didn't work. So at, when I was 45, my dad said, I want you to quit your job I'm going to give you a year's worth of salary and you go out and start a business. And I did. I became an independent consultant at 45. 
I worked in um, service learning, which was linking volunteerism to curriculum for schools and organizations. I did trainings. I, I just had, it was a wonderful experience. And then when 9-11 happened, there was a, a shift in the financing that was available through the grants. The feds froze everything. The state froze everything. So I recreated myself because I, I found some money that was in waste education. And so I spent the rest of my career working for cities, schools, nonprofit organizations, state government, working on curriculums, working on teaching in the schools about, wa- about waste reduction, re- reduction in recycling. It was a very taxing to me physically to go and do those things. It was hard for me to travel. It was hard for me to carry stuff. It was hard for me to be like I'd come home completely exhausted and think, what's this worth? But I persevered and I did it for a long time. And then as each of the um, as I got tireder and I decided I didn't really, I couldn't do this much. I started naturally letting things just drop off until I got down to one big client, which was a city. And I did like the websites and I did school education still a little bit. But in 2019, well, prior to 2019, let me just say I was diagnosed. So let me go back just a minute here. So, so I've got my career all going here. And I'm falling apart. And I went into my doctor to say, you know, this fibro thing, I don't understand it. I don't fit in with anybody that I'm meeting in the fibro group. And he said, why don't you just like sit back and let's have a talk. So we did. We talked for quite a while. Well, that receptivity on their part is fantastic because oftentimes that's not necessarily the way that might play out. I know there were a few times and maybe you've got other instances, Karen, where it didn't go that way for you. But I know that there's been other times when I'm like, let's continue to talk about this. And it's like, nope, that's the end. This is it. Move along. Or I don't know anything else and I'm too busy. Move along. Yeah. But I'm really glad that there was that reception that you that you had there and you were able to have that conversation well, and I was so fortunate. That doctor was a primary care physician who specialized in sports medicine. And he had a team of students that he worked with. And the team, on the team, there was a girl who was all of a sudden just didn't have any energy and was like collapsing in, on the field. And they put her on a, on a treadmill and checked her oxygenation. And sure enough, they found that she had had a mito issue. And when they did that, it was really, I mean, the fact that he knew about that, he, his eyes lit up. He went, oh my God, I think I know what's wrong with you. And I thought, well, how do you know that? He's like, it's in your cells. And I'm like, well, like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, remember back in biology when you learned about mitochondria? And I'm like, yeah, he said, it's there. You can't see it. It's just going to be in your cells. So he connected me with this amazing old, older doctor named Dr. Stephen Smith. Dr. Smith was the kindest, most experienced mito person that I could have ever asked for. He knew within 10 minutes of meeting me, he told me what, that he knew what was wrong with me, but he needed to do a biopsy to confirm it. Paul was with me at that, at that meeting. We both looked at each other. I bet our mouths fell open. <laughs> I was just like, what? You know what's wrong with me? No way. So it took four months to get all the tests back. My tissue, he did muscle biopsy and he did, and it went all over the country. It was in, it was everywhere. I was like, like just incredible to think that that piece of tissue and they had to have like a, a courier come and take the tissue away immediately. It was on, it was on dry ice. It was raced everywhere. Well, this is so, it's, it's, it's ironic a little bit too, Ken, because I, 
you know, I, I, my diagnosis came through a muscle biopsy as well. So I've got the clinical diagnosis on that side. But I always joked that there's a little piece of me all over the country because they did the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> but for better or worse, there was a little piece of me everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Dr. Smith put me on supplement, supplements right away. Um, the piece that is missing for me is that my body doesn't produce enough of the enzyme that transports fatty acids. And because it can't do that, because so little fatty acid was getting transported, I didn't create oxygen to give energy to my cells. And it answered everything. It was like all of a sudden, the answer was that because I didn't create enough oxygen and my cells were, were like struggling, they were robbing from my muscle instead of from my fat. That's still to this day, it, it's clear to me. It's so amazing that I can just do a little bit too much and I have two or three days of I'm like in so much pain and just like that was, I think it was worth it, but I'm not really sure. I don't know if I should have done that. Oh, that's always the question, right? Yeah. That internal struggle. Yeah. Yeah. But I do it probably more. I mean, I, there's a balance for me. I, there's some things that are just too important to miss and I just do them. I heard the, the words that are popping up there, the fatty acid oxidation. So this is the, the acronym FAOD that I hear about in the mito community, right? I don't have that particular condition, but I hear FAOD a lot, the fatty acid oxidation disorder. Did I get that right? Yes. Yeah. So this is, so this is a form of this. So you went from, Hey, I, I'm not sure this is what's going on. Let's have a conversation to, Hey, here's this other expert in this series. I think something might be going on with your mitochondria. You're like, wait, mitochondria, what's that deal? Oh yeah, biology class. I remember that too. Oh, FAOD, fatty acid oxidation disorder. Okay, now we're moving, right? Like now we're starting to get some answers. Was there was there like a sense of just a little relief there? Like, I mean, years, like I mean decades of of this angst and this wondering and this questioning, and now it seems like you're getting some movement. Boy, that seems like it might have been emotional too. Yeah. It was very emotional and it was very nice to, uh, for, for me. It wasn't life threatening. It was just life changing. And I, it was a turning point for me to stop having to find my answer and be able to move on to helping others. And that was really, really important to me. So that was in 2007 that I was diagnosed. And the diagnosis was that I had CPT2, which is a long name like carnitine transference something disorder. And um, the doctor said, but I think there's something else going on. And I can see that something's wrong with that particular gene, but I can't really tell you. Someday we'll be able to tell you what's wrong with you. Exactly. And so I started out saying that I had CPT2 because I didn't know too much I just, that's what my diagnosis was. And I read about it and I told my doctors about it. And I told my dentist about it because even your dentist matters that they know about this because I have a weird reaction to the local anesthesia. And I had to find a PT that could work with me. And I had to find sources of medication that weren't going to rob us blind because it wasn't really covered very well. And it was very expensive. The The enzyme is ridiculous. It's cost it cost so much money that it was the most expensive thing we were we were spending money on besides our house. And um, so $10 a day. And that was more than it cost to feed me at that time. And I was like, this is nuts, right? This is like, how can this be? But the CPT2 is interesting because it's just one form of fatty acid oxidation disorder. But it comes from the, the uh, there's a chain of energy that's created and 
Um, it's got five different complexes that you can have. And the first two are ones that you hear a lot about with very young children where they are born with it. And now they're being, now they're being tested to see if they have it at everybody's tested at birth to see if they have it, which is so amazing and so wonderful. I just love the idea that you can find out this right away and help your child to survive because the babies were dying. And Dr. Smith was very, he was a pediatric neurologist, um, molecular neurologist, and he focused on children until those children grew up. And then he went to this clinic that I went to that was a lifetime clinic, but you had to have had a disorder since you were a child in order to go there. He was so excited to be able to save these kids. It was very, very important to him. And he was very well respected in the community. And he died in maybe 2011, somewhere around there. And when he died, um, I had a good team of people that were working with me, but I didn't then have a, a neurologist that knew about Mito. And my journey got really complicated for the next almost four years. I could not find a doctor who got me at all. So I went to a doctor who told me I should be, I should be grateful that I'm as uh, able to do what I can do that he has much worse patients than me. I had two of them actually that said that to me in different ways, but they both said it. And these were after having had the kindest, most wonderful guy ever that was, would call me at home on a Sunday night and say, you know, I got your message and let's talk about it. And I was like, this is painful. I felt like I had been abandoned and it was horrible. Yeah. Oh, that is horrible. And it, you know, that reminds me of, and I hear that often, Karen, where, where some folks will have that feedback from somebody, whether it's a clinician or somebody that even that they love and like, Hey, it could always be worse. And I mean, well, you could really kind of look at any type of a situation and say it could always be worse, but I always come back to my girl, Brené Brown. Like I just love her. She, her work is incredible. And she had, she, and people are probably sick of me saying this. If they, if they hear it, I'm probably on repeat, like every, every episode, I probably say this, but you know, she, she talks about empathy and compassion, not, you know, they're not finite. Everybody's hurt matters, right? Everything that we're going through, matters and it's difficult and challenging and you're going through your stuff Karen I'm going through my stuff there's no need to get into this comparative mode right like and she she says comparative suffering is a bankrupt idea everybody's going through stuff whether it's in the rare disease community or the mito world or FAOD or just life right like just what we're going through and it it matters and everybody you know I can have empathy and compassion for you and I'm not running out of that, right? And neither is uh, neither are other people. We might have to lean into different people at different times for that support and that help. But boy, I, I'm sorry that you experienced that, and that so many others do as well, because that um, it, it just seems so limiting. Yeah. Well, it makes it, it. It is really hard. Yeah, that was really, really, really. I was I I was so depressed, and I was so I was almost panicked. Like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? You know, like I don't. I can't find a doctor. Before we go, before I go on, though, I want to ask you, what was, after your diagnosis, what was your turning point? Mine was finding out what my diagnosis was, but. Well, you know, it's interesting, Karen, for me, because my timeline is, is way condensed compared to your story. Like, I hear you and others going through these really arduous journeys, and I call it a diagnostic odyssey, right? Mine was an odyssey. It was only 10-month odyssey. It was still brutal. It was still challenging, and it wasn't as drawn out and as long as, as yours and others I think that that first step was helpful for me, but it also 
put me into a bit of a downward spiral when I got my diagnosis, the clinical diagnosis, because in my mind, I thought once I got that piece of information, it would mean a treatment and a cure and then back to life as I knew it before. And it was anything but. It was a, hey, this is a progressive disease and there's no treatment and there's no cure. So it really kind of sent me for a spiral for a bit. And then my, my real turning point that I could really identify with was sitting there thinking, man, there's got to be other people out there that are going through something similar. I feel like I'm the only dad like in the whole world who's trying to navigate this incredibly challenging situation where I went from a seemingly healthy 35-year-old guy doing everything imaginable with my kids and with my career, with my family, to all of a sudden not being able to navigate any of those things and see this progression of symptoms and this decline in my health. So I'd say the turning point for me came when I decided to reach out and figure out if there were other people in other places that were going through this. And then I, I saw some information on social media and some people that I could connect with. And that's when I thought, man, I need to own this story that I have. And I'm going to try to do that in a way that can connect other people because I don't want anybody else to feel like I was feeling in that moment. So I'd say that was probably a bit of the turning point for me. It was after that diagnosis, a few months after that, then I decided to come out and share my story with the help of some of my friends in the rare disease community. And, and, um, and then it kind of, that was the switch for me. Like the, I, I still grapple with the internal discussions, right. And the internal struggles on, on a continual basis. And I'm trying to see what can we do as a community? How can we support each other? And I would say that that feeling of needing to see if there's anyone else out there was what drove me to reach out to the Mito community. And it was really hard for me to do because I've been living on my own all these years, like in my own little bubble. And then I heard that there was like a support group for Mito Action. And I was like, really? Like for fatty acid oxidation disorder? And so it has been a life changer for me that to actually meet only virtually so far, but hopefully that's going to change soon. I met people who knew what I was talking about. And that very first meeting, there were only three of us on the Zoom call. And I was like, you mean to tell me there are two people sitting right there in front of me on the screen who have what I have, maybe a little different, but the same diagnosis? Holy moly, this is this is awesome. Like, And I was just so excited and happy. And just it was such a relief. And then because I still didn't have a doctor, I started, I reached out to the Mito community on Facebook asking if anybody knew of any doctors. I start, I ended up asking Mito Action for other referrals because nobody could refer me to anyone here in Minnesota. Oh, it was like exhausting and frustrating and just so hard. And, but I want to tell you a story about what's happened since then, because my advocacy piece was I needed to get through my self-advocacy. I needed to figure out how to take control of me so that I could move on to help other people. And I had this great story that I think people will really like. So in 2020, I bought myself, after getting a diagnosis of needing a knee replacement, I bought myself a an electric assist bike. I had tried a regular bike. I couldn't ride it anymore when I had my fusion. I tried a pedal forward bike and I could ride it, but I couldn't get up the hills. And so I just pretty much had given up on biking. And my son, who um, is a biker, said, Mom, let's, I'm going to fix you up a bike. Let's just see what we can do. And if it works, then we'll put an electric assist on it. But in the end, I ended up buying an actually designed to be an electric assist bike. And her name is Lexa. She is my best friend <laughs> um, on the road. She's my best friend. 
I bought the bike without talking to, and really, I didn't ask permission. I decided that I was going to buy myself this bike. And I went and tried them and it was like flying. It was just so amazing. So I ended up in my, the way that I had to do this was not a normal way of having to do this because I had to start with riding one block. Then I had to, then I could ride two blocks, three blocks, half mile, one mile. And I needed to set a goal for myself so that that I could like keep going because it was really frustrating. In, in a week, I only might gain, you know, two more blocks or half a mile. And um, so I set set a goal that I was going to try to ride 12 miles before the summer was over. I got this bike right at, at the end of May in 2020. So I'm riding my bike and I get to, it, I get it down, I figure it out. And, um, and I keep working at it. And at the end of the summer, we were able to ride a 12 mile ride. Now I don't say it was easy. It was really hard and I was really tired, but I did it and I did it. Now the piece that I like about it is that it doesn't really matter. Well, it, it did matter to me at the point, at the time where I did the electric assist, I was like, Oh, I don't want to have to use a assistive device. I was already using walking sticks for walking when I went hiking and I think that struggle is real for everybody, really, Karen, on that end. It was really tough for me. It started out with the cane and then moved on to the assistant braces and the, you know, the, using the motorized scooters to get around and the travel scoots and those types of things to get from A to B or a wheelchair if I had to and, you know, in the in the airport or getting around, you know, all those different things. It's a there's the emotional capital that goes along with that. And and I I've thought about the bike that stuff before too, maybe even a, a recumbent or something, but maybe you'll inspire me to get my own Lexa version. I don't know, but um, yeah, yeah. I, hear, I hear you on that. I hear you. Yeah. yeah. It's one of the most freeing things that I have done for myself, not only because I took, I empowered myself to do it and I paid for it with money that I had earned, earned so nobody could argue with me about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was retiring. I wanted to I really wanted to be able to have this for me. And I also wanted to, I guess, maybe embrace the fact that this was not changing. This was not going to get better than it is today. This is really pretty good compared to what it was 10 years ago. So I'm like, okay, I could do this. And sometimes those, the, I don't know if it's pride. I don't know exactly. Some things don't bother me at all. Like after a surgery, having to use a walker. But when you, when I had to use a walking stick to go hiking on uneven ground, or I had to do the, this power assist. I'm like, really? Like, I don't feel like I have to do that. And really on the surface, I'm, that's one of the things that's most amazing for me is that I can do almost anything, but I don't last at doing it because I crash and burn. And then I'm exhausted. I might come home and sleep for hours because of it. And, and usually do actually. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you did that though. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And I really, I really want to encourage people that no matter what you can do, no matter how, whether it's only that you can take a, a walk to the mailbox or, a, or you can't walk and uh, without assistance. So you have to use a walker or you need a chair or you need a full electric bike, not just in a power assist one. If you want this and you want, you want to try it, you should try it because it is so it, it makes me feel healthy and it makes me super happy to go out on and ride going through nature on a trail just is, is amazing. That is so amazing. that's kind of the, that was another turning point for me. Yeah. That's a fantastic encouragement too, Karen, because, you know, I think that 
that there's sometimes we just do need to kind of take that little bit of a leap or give it give it a shot, give it a try, even though it might seem like it, there could be roadblocks or barriers in there. If we can move past those or give it a shot, then we'll know at least, right? Like if we try it, then we'll know. And it, sometimes it does open up a whole new world for you or, or for me and for what we can do or how we can access things. And yeah, and I love that it just brings you that joy. And if you, by the way, if you want to see, for those listening, if you want to see some of the joy, it's one of my favorite photos. It's going to go onto the website for the cover art for this episode with, with Karen and, and Lex on there. <laughs> it's it's fabulous. They're good. out there just tearing <laughs> it up and having a good time. And I, I love it. So check out that photo art for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't want to miss talking about grandparenting. Yes, I would love that. I was I was curious about that. Yeah. <laughs> so the bike turn the bike does tie into grandparenting because I have been out riding with my grandchildren. That's a ton of fun and I can keep up with them and we have <laughs> That's great. we can laugh and have a good time and I really like that. But I was thinking about this grandparenting issue because I've been a grandma since 2000 and well I even looked I even wrote it down. I don't remember what it was. I think it was 2011. And our daughter adopted two boys from the foster care system who were uh, when we met them, they were ages two and three. And there were some things that they did that sort of shocked me because I've never had anyone not understand, like, you can't squeeze my hand that hard, or, you know, I can't race after you. So you're going to have to stay near where I am. And so that was my first experience with grandparenting. It was really exhausting. I loved them dearly, but I was exhausted. And, and they were, you know, if it was nap time, they didn't want to nap in a strange place. So if they're at our house, then or we were at their house, it changed the changed life. And it was just really not the easiest thing to, to take on. But I still wanted to do it. And so um, I found ways to reach them. We always read with them. We, um, we, you know, would set up the little swimming pool outside in the yard, and they would play and, you know, we'd sit, I'd sit and watch them and other people might have done more interactive things, but, you know, we found a way to make it work. And our daughter always um, tried to help and she didn't walk away and go do something else. She was always, has always been there close by. When the other grandchildren came, we now have the two boys that are six, 15 and 16 or almost 15 and 16. And then we have a 11 year old, I always get that wrong, but I think he's, he'll turn 12 this year. Um, she was born 11, 11, 11, which is kind of fun. <laughs> but anyway, so we have a grandson and then a granddaughter that's eight and then another granddaughter who's four. And the one who's four is having a new baby. And the, the thing that I think is interesting is that being a grandma is not so different than what I had to do being a, a mom. I'm still a mom uh, in every way you could imagine to my own children, sometimes more than they want me to be a mom. But, <laughs> but um but for the kids, for the grandkids, I am my nick my mama my grandma name is Lolly. And it's a silly story because my husband was always pops to my um, middle son. And so Lolly and Lolly and Pops. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Lolly Pops. Yep. So I Googled it and I found Lolly Pops and started laughing so hard. I thought I'll never do that. And and actually I ended up saying, you know what? I've never had a nickname like that. This is really fun. So I'm Lolly. And what I do as a grandma is, uh, <laughs> this is ridiculous, but so during COVID, it was, we couldn't see them. We occasionally saw the, the one that lives here in Minnesota that's four, but the rest of our grandchildren, we really didn't see them. It was too risky. And so we started doing Zoom call or FaceTime calls between us. 
And boy, did we have fun. We played card games like Uno and Yahtzee and dice games like Farkle. We did, we read uh, so many books. I went through every book I had here. We'd go to the little libraries and get more books. It was just like a way to have a relationship without being together. And it was at my speed, which was even better because then I could, I could do all those things, right? Yeah. That's a win all around. I, yeah, I think it's great. It was a win. And then the other thing that, that I try to do with them is because I can't compete with anyone, anyone else because it just, it's too hard for me to do so many things. I decided that I was going to be the grandma that made things for my grandchildren, taught them to make things. So I taught them um, sewing and knitting and we, we read together and we draw together and we, you know, play every game imaginable when we're together in person but we also, you know, like the house rules when they're here is there will be a quiet time. Doesn't matter what age you are or anything. We're going to have a quiet time. Lolly needs a quiet time. And they just accept that. Like, okay, we're going to do this. And I want to say to people that are doing parenting or grandparenting that so much of this is creativity and thinking about what could I do that doesn't take all my energy that the kids will just think is fun. And it will, a lot of things are things that they, that we just take for granted that we did them as kids or our children or with our children when we're grandparents, they don't get those opportunities necessarily baking cookies or, you know, just writing a letter to someone like that. It's easier to send an email. Why would I want to write letters? But we write letters back and forth. And I think that my age has mellowed me out so that I'm not, I'm more forgiving of myself that I can't do everything. And I would say that the arthritic piece of me, the part that's just genetically I got, but it has been way more difficult to deal with than the mito piece at this point, because everyone kind of expects that grandparents are going to slow down, but not every, but you, when they, the kids squeeze your hand or, you know, twist your arm or want you to open something and I can't do it. I just feel inadequate. And it's kind of frustrating. I have to give myself some pats on the back for everything that I have been able to do. And I can ride my bike with them, which I, I was like, that's my active thing. You know, we can go for a walk, but I can only, at this point I can walk again, I can walk a couple of miles, but I had a really long COVID experience where I was sick first with COVID and then had long COVID for seven months and because with this fatty acid oxidation order, I couldn't exercise normally. I ha it's really hard for me to exercise. So I do exercises every day that are strengthening. And then I, but everything's in small numbers and I don't know, it's kind of challenging, but I walk and walking is something that I've been able to continue to do, especially with my back is really important. And that's the one thing that the doctor from my back said is keep walking, keep your weight down and keep walking. And I have tried really hard to do that. But the thing is, is that with when you're sick and so many of us that have uh, mitochondrial issues are more susceptible to some of these things like, you know, getting, getting ill, very ill from things that other people don't necessarily get that sick. So when I got mito, not only did I not have a doctor to go to, but I also didn't have I also didn't, they didn't know what to do with me. The doctors that my primary didn't know how to deal with it. And basically, and I've heard this from other Mito people that they, they told me to just go home and rest, hydrate and rest, hydrate and rest. So that's what I did. And now I'm really excited to say that I have been able to get back to walking again and I can go a couple miles again, which 
that's why the doctor says, well, you should be grateful. And I'm like, yeah, it took me almost 20 years to get back up to walking any more than a block or two or maybe a mile, <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm really excited that it's gone as well as I have, as it has. And I think I, I'm very grateful for everything that I can do. I try really hard to stay positive and um, be resilient to the changes that I need to make. And sometimes it just knocks me flat as far as, and I know you know about this. I just, some days you just go, I wish this was different. I wish I had control. I don't feel like I own my body. My body owns me. And, and so I just hope that people find some hope in what I'm saying and find, find their bike, find their thing that's going to give them some freedom and some just happiness, just sheer joy that we forget to have when we're in the middle of a chronic pain life. And I keep searching for new ways to deal with the pain. And I keep searching for more, you know, more friends that it's so, so much fun to hook up into the Mito community. I hope people do that. And I would like to say that, yeah, that my one thing I want to make sure that I say is that I am very interested in working with the issues of aging population of Mito patients in the sense that I would like to do advocacy and the reason I want to do advocacy is because I have had an, an, just a real challenge finding doctors who will see an adult patient, getting prescriptions that are unusual because I can't take the other things that they want to give me, and finding a PT, which luckily my PT, Brian Weber, here in Minnesota is fantastic. And he didn't know anything about Mito, but he learned. And I think you, the, the piece that we have to figure out is how to accept that older people are living longer and that at 66, my life isn't over. My life is in its, you know, like it's still in a good place and I don't want to give it up. And so when people say, oh, you know what, you know, we don't see adult patients. I'm like, well, what do you expect me to do if you don't see an adult patient? And so I would like to work on that issue. And I don't, I'm not aware of, organizations that are working with advocacy and this these kinds of issues, but I would really like to get engaged with them and make some connections and help them to do this work. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that, Karen, because I think that that's one thing I wanted to bring up and highlight. I know you and I have talked a little bit in the recent past about your, your advocacy desires and how you want to really jump back in. I mean, in reality, after especially after hearing more about your story, you've been advocating for a while now. And I really appreciate all of that work and especially through, you know, for your own journey, but then in, in turn, like you've been able to help others through the process, even with the, you know, the spinal surgery, the fusion that you had there, that being a groundbreaking thing in a way that's advocating, right? Like you're, and you're moving the needle forward for, for so many others. And, uh, but anyways, I, I love how you're really jumping back into the the saddle here and, and jumping onto the advocacy train. And I want to, you know, just encourage anybody that's, that's out there that might, you know, have ideas for how this could line up with with Karen um, or some of the ideas that she has. Maybe you have some similar interests. We can definitely put some information in the show notes. Maybe, Karen, if you've got a Facebook page or or a way that people can connect with you, we can mention that here. But I wanted to make sure that, you know, if there's anybody out there that wants to discuss these things further or they've got ideas for how Karen might be able to get involved with advocacy, whether it's with an organization or or individuals, or you want to just discuss, feel free to reach out either to me or, and I can connect you with Karen or, or we can get some uh, info into the show notes. But I, 
I love that and want to thank you for that um, work that you're doing because it's really important. And I feel like this this little niche area is one that we haven't really discussed a whole lot just yet in the rare disease community, the mito community, the FAOD community. And I, I think that we, we need to tap into some of these things and and continue to move forward. And, may, and who knows, Karen, maybe you'll run a support group or a, an advocacy group of your own someday. You've got that drive and that perseverance. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing where things go for, for you and with you as you continue to you know, serve in these different capacities. It's fantastic. Thank you. That's just a great idea. I love that idea. Running a support group for aging mito patients. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. That would be really. That'd be really cool. I would like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure. I'm. I'm sure we could make that happen at some point. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time, Karen. I really appreciate it. You know, like like I mentioned, it's an important lens that might be a bit overlooked here. I'm really thankful for this little glimpse into the grandparents' rare life as well. You, you had many wonderful takeaways. I love that you were talking about finding what you can do and making that work and, and running with that. I think there were a lot of ideas. And I think, honestly, Karen, sometimes it's just tough to figure out when we're in the midst of it, right? When we're going through it, especially having those hard times that you discussed, sometimes it can be really challenging just to think, how do I interact with my kids or with my grandkids? What do I do? And you had many great ideas and little tips and pointers. And sometimes that's what it takes is just, oh, maybe I could try that or, or give that a go. So thanks for sharing that, your perspective, your journey. You know, I really appreciate it. And and as I said before, I'm looking forward to seeing what's what's next for you, because you're, you're right on when you say um, you're not done yet. Right. Like there's, there's still plenty to do. You've got plenty of life left to live, plenty to give. And and uh, I really appreciate that. And everybody, go find your bike. I think that's what we're going to use for our title here. Grandparents is rare. Find your bike. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty funny. (laughs) It was great. It was great. Well, thanks so much. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Parents is Rare, a series of the Energy in Action podcast. Please be sure to leave a review and a rating for this episode wherever you listen and subscribe and listen to the Energy in Action podcast, where we talk all things Mito. Until next time, remember to show up, Be vulnerable, supportive, and kind, and give yourself permission to feel along the way.